Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. Our enslaved protagonist, Catherine, was cheated out of freedom by an unscrupulous master, but she boldly asserted her independence and found an attorney to lobby for her legal emancipation. While they petitioned courts and the state legislature for justice, Catherine's predicament was confounded by unresponsive litigants and the shifting sands of statute law. Legal manumission remained elusive, but Catherine managed to gain a significant measure of freedom in her later years. The sparse details of her life illuminate a dramatic story of women's rights, African-American history, and a bit of courtroom drama. Let's begin with a quick review of the first installment of this story. Catherine was an enslaved woman of African descent who contracted with her owner, Antoine Plumet, around the year 1812 to purchase her own freedom. After working outside his home for a period of months or years and paying her wages to her master, Catherine was defrauded by Monsieur Plumet, who apparently had no intention of manumitting her. Following Plumet's death in the spring of 1816, Catherine considered herself to be freed from the bonds of slavery and began to live and work independently. Meanwhile, Charleston musician Louis de Villers acted as the executor of Plumet's estate for a period of approximately two years, superintending the remaining goods and chattel the deceased Frenchman had left to some unnamed heirs residing in France. One of these heirs, Pierre-Francois Brisson, arrived in Charleston by the summer of 1818 and took possession of Plumet's estate, for both himself and as attorney for the other unnamed heirs still residing in France. At some point after his arrival in Charleston, Monsieur Brisson physically repossessed Catherine, whom he considered to be his lawful property. On the first day of August, 1818, Brisson sold Catherine to a French baker, Pierre Labosse, who lived just outside Charleston's city limits on Upper King Street. Gaining a Legal Voice By the autumn of 1818, Catherine was living with a new family under the familiar bonds of slavery. The details of her movements and contacts over the ensuing months are lost, but she apparently discussed her situation with close friends and expressed her continued desire to be free. Through channels and conversations unknown, Catherine met Isaac Edward Holmes, born 1796, died 1867, the scion of an old and respectable Charleston family who had recently graduated from Yale College and, in 1818, passed the bar in the city of his birth. It's possible that Mr. Holmes learned of Catherine's predicament through an informal network within the city's legal community, a sort of pool of pro bono cases through which young lawyers might gain courtroom experience and advance their careers. Regardless of the long-lost particulars of how they met, Catherine and Isaac must have been in contact by the end of the year 1819. She recounted to the 23-year-old attorney the story of her life with Anne and Peter Catonet and their tripartite agreement with the late Antoine Plumet to allow Catherine to purchase her freedom for $300. 
Mr. Holmes, though no abolitionist, concurred that Catherine had been ill-treated and defrauded. He agreed to take her case, but the young lawyer probably advised his enslaved client that the legal process of securing her freedom involved a number of steps that might take many months to accomplish. The first step was to establish a legal voice for Catherine. As an enslaved woman of African descent, she was legally invisible to the courts of antebellum South Carolina. Fortunately for her, the so-called Negro Act of 1740, which formed the foundation of South Carolina's slave code until 1865, included a provision tailored for this situation. Any free person of color or any enslaved person claiming his or her freedom could select a white representative to apply to the local court of common pleas on their behalf. The court was empowered to admit said white representative as a legal guardian to act on behalf of the person claiming to be free. Moreover, the law empowered the guardian to file suit, quote, against any person who shall claim property in or who shall be in possession of the person claiming his or her freedom. This clause might sound rather liberal in the general context of South Carolina's rigid slave code, but the burden of proof was always on the person claiming his or her freedom. The law of 1740 dictated, quote, that it shall be always presumed that every Negro, Indian, mulatto, and mestizo is a slave unless the contrary can be made to appear, end quote. Acting initially as Catherine's informal ally, Isaac Holmes submitted a petition to the Court of Common Pleas for Charleston District at some point in 1819 or perhaps the early days of 1820. Following the course prescribed by the state's slave code, the court acknowledged and affirmed Holmes to be Catherine's legal guardian, not in a custodial sense, but simply as her legal representative in any court of law. The paper records documenting this appointment no longer survive, but Holmes's subsequent representation of Catherine in other legal venues acknowledged that the Court of Common Pleas had empowered him to act on her behalf. Suing for Catherine's Freedom On Wednesday, February 16, 1820, Isaac E. Holmes filed a bill of complaint against Pierre Brisson in the Court of Equity for Charleston District. The text of the bill does not survive, but it probably included an overview of the case and several supporting documents like affidavits to illustrate the details. A later summary described this case as, quote, a suit for the recovery of the freedom of a female of color named Catherine, who is held as a slave by the defendant, Brisson, as the agent and representative of foreigners residing in France, under the will of the late Mr. Plumet, end quote. That brief description includes one word, recovery, that addresses a crucial and dramatic facet of this story. Holmes was not simply arguing for Catherine's emancipation. He was asserting that she had already become free by virtue of her verbal contract with Antoine Plumet and by his subsequent death in 1816. The plaintiff argued that Pierre Brisson's claim to hold Catherine as a slave was a violation of her civil liberties, and Holmes therefore sought the recovery of her legal freedom.
In response to the filing of Holmes's bill, the court would have issued a writ summoning the defendant, Pierre Brisson, to file his own bill in answer. From that moment, Catherine might have enjoyed a period of relative safety. She was now the ward of a guardian who had filed suit on her behalf, and the law temporarily shielded her from recriminations. The same 1740 law that empowered her guardian, Holmes, to sue for her freedom included a clause protecting the plaintiff's ward from being, quote, eloined or carried away, abused or misused, end quote. If Brison, or perhaps her new owner, Pierre Labosse, sought to remove Catherine from the court's jurisdiction or to intimidate her into submission, the court could prosecute them for contempt and possible criminal charges. Chancellor Thomas Wadies opened the regular semi-annual session of the Charleston Court of Equity on Monday, February 21st, but Catherine's case did not receive an immediate hearing. The court's three-week session concluded in mid-March 1820 without receiving a response from Pierre Brisson. Following its normal calendar, the Charleston District Court of Equity convened again on Monday, November 13th under Chancellor Theodore Gilliard and continued for two weeks. Again, Defendant Brisson did not file a response to the bill filed eight months earlier by Isaac Holmes. The reasons behind Brisson's silence are not addressed in any surviving documents. Perhaps he felt that the suit had been wrongly filed against him since he had sold Catherine to Pierre Labosse in 1818. Perhaps Brisson, as a recently arrived French national, did not understand the American legal system and chose to ignore the court summons. Whatever the reasons behind the delay, Brisson's inaction created serious complications for Catherine. The legal door narrows. Whether Pierre Brisson's failure to respond to the court of equity was motivated by malice or greed or plain lethargy, he probably had no idea of the damage his inaction would inflict on Catherine's case. If he had filed a timely response to Isaac Holmes' suit in February or November of 1820, the court would most likely have ruled in Catherine's favor and ordered her to be freed immediately. The suit initiated by her guardian, Holmes, would stand as a precedent to defeat any future challenges to her freedom, and she would have lived out her years in peace. While the months passed and Brisson did not respond, however, South Carolina's elected lawmakers were voicing their contempt for the state's growing population of free people of color. The narrow legal pathway from slavery to freedom, which the legislature had nearly closed in December of 1800, was about to slam shut. On December 20, 1820, the South Carolina General Assembly in Columbia ratified an act specifically designed to prevent people like Catherine from becoming free. On that date, the state's white male authorities proclaimed that, quote, the great and rapid increase of free Negroes and mulattoes in this state by migration and emancipation renders it expedient and necessary for the legislature to restrain the emancipation of slaves and to prevent free persons of color from entering into this state, end quote. 
To remedy this situation, the state plainly decreed, quote, that no slave shall hereafter be emancipated but by act of the legislature, end quote. With this brief phrase, the General Assembly closed all customary pathways that heretofore had permitted many hundreds of enslaved South Carolinians to become free. To gain freedom from slavery, an individual now had to obtain the legislative consent of the majority of the state's most conservative white slaveholders. News of the legislative proceedings in Columbia appeared in Charleston's daily newspapers throughout the month of December 1820, but it's unclear how Catherine learned of the new prohibitive law. Perhaps she heard others speak of it on the streets and ran to the office of Isaac Holmes in search of an explanation. The young attorney might have explained to her that the act to restrain the emancipation of slaves, while injurious to her case, did not obliterate her chances of regaining her freedom. The court of equity, in which they had sought to defeat the claim of Pierre Brisson, now lacked the power to render a final decision on that matter. But a good showing in that venue would strengthen their case in the next forum. Soon they would appeal to the state legislature and try to convince the gentlemen of the House of Representatives and the Senate to ratify an act to restore Catherine's freedom. For the moment, however, they still needed to focus on the case before the Court of Equity. Hope was not yet lost. Catherine's Day in Court on Thursday, February 15, 1821, Pierre-François Brisson finally submitted a bill to the Court of Equity in answer to that filed by Isaac Holmes 52 weeks earlier. Chancellor Henry W. Desessor opened the semi-annual session on Monday, February 19th within the Charleston District Courthouse at the northwest corner of Meeting and Broad Streets and continued to sit daily until the middle of March. Although the precise date of Catherine's hearing is unclear, at some point during that three-week period, the bailiff called forward the parties involved in Holmes, Guardian of Catherine versus Pierre F. Brisson. The court did not record a transcript of the arguments, and the bills submitted by both the plaintiff and defendant are now lost. It seems likely that Isaac Holmes might have argued his own case before the court, but the identity of Brisson's attorney is unknown. The plaintiff presented a summary of Catherine's life over the preceding decade, and his arguments were supported by witnesses like Anne and Peter Catanet, who testified in regard to their bargain with Antoine Plumet to permit Catherine to purchase her own freedom for $300. For his defense, Pierre Brisson simply argued ignorance of the entire matter. He had come to Charleston to take possession of property inherited from the late Antoine Plumet, and he knew nothing about a verbal contract between Plumet, the Catonets, or Catherine. Unlike the more familiar civil court, in which judges render decisions based strictly on the application of prior case law and precedent, Judges in equity court use their professional experience and discretion to weigh the evidence at hand and determine the most equitable and fair resolution for the parties involved. 
although most of the documentation related to Catherine's 1821 case is now lost, we are fortunate that the final decree written by Judge Henry W. Desisar survives. In the text version of this program, which you'll find on the website of the Charleston County Public Library, I've transcribed the entirety of Judge Desisar's decree, but in the interest of time, I'm going to read just a few highlights from that document. Quote, Holmes, Guardian of Catherine versus Pierre F. Brisson. This is a suit for the recovery of the freedom of a female of color named Catherine, who is held as a slave by the defendant, as the agent and representative of foreigners residing in France, under the will of the late Mr. Plumet. The executor of Plumet, Louis de Villers, had received some wages from her since the death of his testator, but not much, as she claimed her freedom. The woman was proved to be of good character, healthy, and capable of maintaining herself. The question is, can she recover her freedom under these circumstances, according to our laws? Indeed, a subsequent law in December 1820 has made it more difficult, for it has enacted that no emancipation shall be valid but by petition to the legislature and a special law authorizing it in every case. The legislature might possibly listen to the application in such a case, where the purchaser had violated the condition of his contract made with the former owner for the benefit of the slave, and gained a great benefit by such condition, and by the violation of it. I am not sure that it would erect itself into a tribunal to try a disputed claim to freedom, as of right. Be that as it may, it is not for the court to advise or direct— It is our painful duty, often, to witness cases of hardship almost beyond the reach of human redress, and I should feel this as one of extreme hardship on the female Catherine, unless experience has shown that the gift of freedom to one who must still remain in a degraded class is not always a blessing, but more frequently a curse. The bill must therefore be dismissed but without costs, as the respectable person who instituted the suit as guardian acted from the purest humanity in the case of real hardship. Appealing to the Legislature In the wake of the inconclusive decree rendered by the Court of Equity in March 1821, Catherine and her guardian, Isaac Holmes, turned their attention to the most obvious next step, As Judge Desisor had hinted in his decree, the plaintiffs would have to address a petition to the state legislature, which now formed the final arbiter in all cases of future emancipation in South Carolina. The State General Assembly was, at that time, in the habit of convening each year in late November and concluding business before the end of December. The details of Catherine's life between March and November of 1821 are now lost, but she probably continued living with the family of Pierre Labosse on Upper King Street and sharing the wages she earned with her legal owners. At some point in November, Isaac Holmes drafted two copies of a long petition comprising several sheets of paper and sent one each to the South Carolina Senate and to the House of Representatives. Only the Senate copy of Holmes's four-page petition survives, and the South Carolina Department of Archives and History has digitized the entire document and placed it online. 
Through carelessness or confusion, Isaac Holmes's 1821 petition misidentified Catherine's former owner, Antoine Plumet, by referring to him as Dr. Plumeau. It seems that Mr. Holmes conflated the similar names of three different Frenchmen in his petition. As I mentioned in the previous program, one Dr. John Plumet resided in Charleston at the beginning of the 19th century. His relative and Catherine's legal owner, Antoine Plumet, died in 1816. Mr. Holmes confused these two deceased Frenchmen with a fellow refugee from Saint-Domingue, then living in Charleston, named John Francis Plumeau. Monsieur Plumeau had nothing to do with Catherine's predicament, however, so we must excuse Mr. Holmes's slip of the pen and focus on the facts of the case at hand. Like the equity decree described earlier, I'm including a full transcription of Holmes's petition with the text version of this podcast, but in the interest of time, I'm going to summarize that long document. Holmes began by stating that he was appointed by the Court of Common Pleas to be the guardian of a Negro wench named Catherine, who claims her freedom. Then he summarized Catherine's tenure with the Catanet family and their bargain with Antoine Plumet. Testimony presented in the Court of Equity proved that Catherine had paid more than $300 to Plumet during his lifetime, but he refused to emancipate her until his death. Catherine subsequently claimed her freedom until Pierre Brisson re-enslaved her. The Court of Equity sympathized with Catherine's plight, but in light of the Prohibitive State Act of December 1820, the Court advised Holmes to appeal to the South Carolina General Assembly. In conclusion, wrote Isaac Holmes to each chamber of the state legislature, quote, Your memorialist therefore prays your honorable house will pass an act whereby the said wench, Catherine, may be emancipated and enjoy all the rights and privileges of a free Negro in the state of South Carolina, end quote. The Legislature in Action Holmes's appeal on behalf of Catherine was one of 22 similar petitions submitted to the South Carolina General Assembly in November 1821, asking for permission to emancipate dozens of enslaved people. Both the South Carolina Senate and House of Representatives read Holmes's petition on November 27th, at which time each chamber referred the petition to their respective committees charged with considering the other similar requests. The Senate committee reported on December 4th by presenting a bill to set free the slaves therein mentioned, which received its first reading. The committee of the House of Representatives followed on December 7th with its own bill, which received a first reading that same day. It wasn't until December 10th that the House heard the report of the committee that drafted the bill in question, however. The text of their report, which is found in the Manuscript Journal of the House Session of 1821, provides valuable insight into the strange logic of institutional slavery in antebellum South Carolina. In their report, the House Committee divided the 22 petitions for manumission into four categories. The first included requests predicated on a simple wish to reward certain faithful slaves, which the committee rejected without further consideration. 
The second category included white men who wished to free their mulatto children and their enslaved mothers. To remedy this practice, which legislators described as, quote, an intercourse repugnant to morality and the best interests of society, end quote, the committee recommended the fathers simply send their children out of the state to find more congenial conditions elsewhere. The third category included petitions from 17 executors who sought to manumit various people in accordance with the wills of deceased testators. The committee rejected their pleas as well, stating that the desired object was contrary to the state acts of 1800 and 1820, which rendered their requests illegal and void. The fourth and final category included five petitions to manumit slaves who had contracted for their freedom with their respective owners, but owing to a variety of peculiar circumstances, the necessary paperwork to effect their manumission was not executed before the ratification of the Prohibitive Act of December 1820. In contrast to the previous categories, the House Committee opined that the five petitions in question, including that filed by Isaac Holmes on behalf of Catherine, quote, should receive the favorable consideration of the legislature. These cases seem to form an exception to the prohibition of the law, wrote the committee, as the slaves in justice ought to have been manumitted previous to the last session of the legislature in December 1820. Their number is so small that their emancipation will add but little to the evil apprehended from the increase of free persons of color, and as they are confined entirely to contracts made and executed before the Act of 1820, their number cannot in future increase. End quote. The House then read a second time the committee's bill to emancipate certain slaves therein named and ordered it to be sent to the Senate for their consideration. The Senate received and read the House bill on December 11th without debate. The text of the bill does not survive, but the Senate Journal of December 12, 1821, includes a brief debate on a single provision in the bill. The proposed legislation apparently included a clause requiring the people soon to be emancipated to leave South Carolina and never return. Senators were evenly divided over the penalties to be inflicted on such an emancipated person who might return to the state. Should their former masters then forfeit a bond ensuring their departure, or should the freed person, quote, be again reduced to slavery, end quote. The Senate postponed further debate over this sticking point from December 12th to the 13th to the 14th, on which day the senators, quote, ordered that the bill be postponed until the first Monday of January next, end quote. But the South Carolina legislature did not convene in January of 1822, and so the matter was, in theory at least, laid over until the commencement of the next legislative session in November 1822. Unfortunately for Catherine and her pursuit of freedom, however, the events that unfolded in Charleston during the intervening summer dashed her chances of success. The city and the state of South Carolina in general were shocked in June of 1822 by the discovery of a purported plot for slaves and free people of color to launch a violent revolt against the white population. 
During a series of interrogations and trials held in June and July, white authorities extracted details of the plan from dozens of black suspects and identified a free man named Denmark Vesey as the purported ringleader. Vesey and 34 other men were hanged in Charleston, and state authorities banished a further 31 men from the boundaries of South Carolina. The State Acts of 1800 and 1820, which reduced and then closed the legal pathways from slavery to freedom, were the product of white concerns over the growing population of free persons of color. The trials and executions in the summer of 1822 amplified those fears to a fever of paranoia, both in Charleston and at the state capitol. When South Carolina's legislators convened in Columbia in November of 1822, the recent Denmark Vesey affair dominated their discussions and actions. The members of the state House of Representatives and Senate were in no mood to increase the population of free people of color whom they viewed with such distrust. When petitions came before them to emancipate various slaves, they simply rejected them and moved on to other business. Catherine's Later Life Following the state legislature's inaction on this case in December of 1821 and their rejection of future emancipation in December 1822, Catherine must have realized that she would never legally regain her freedom in South Carolina. Isaac Holmes, her erstwhile guardian, might have sympathized with her defeat, but his promising legal career was just beginning to flower. Soon he would be elected to city, state, and national offices and travel to distant lands in pursuit of his own destiny. At home in Charleston, however, the story of Catherine's life quickly faded into obscurity. The paper trail outlining the rest of her life becomes increasingly sketchy after 1822, making it difficult to draw definite conclusions about the remainder of her life. Despite the paucity of data, there is some evidence that Catherine might have enjoyed a modicum of freedom during her final years. As I mentioned in last week's program, Pierre Brisson ended Catherine's brief life of freedom in 1818 and sold her that August to a French baker named Pierre Labossé for $650. On September 23, 1823, Labossé sold her back to Brisson for the same price, at which time she was again described as, quote, a Negro woman named Catherine, formerly belonging to the estate of Anthony Plumet, end quote. The reasons behind this resale to Brisson are unclear, but it appears that Monsieur Labossé, a native of Saint-Ange, France, was in declining health and might have needed to liquidate some of his assets. He made his will in December of 1823, leaving all of his modest estate to his wife, Marie-Catherine Labossé, and died in the spring of 1824. Four months after repurchasing Catherine, Pierre Brisson sold her again on January 22, 1824, to another Frenchman living in urban Charleston. For the now reduced sum of $350, Brisson conveyed to Etienne Paul, quote, a Negro woman named Catherine, formerly belonging to the estate of Anthony Plumet, end quote. 
49 weeks later, Paul resold to Brisson the same woman for the same sum of $350. Then, on August 17, 1825, Brisson sold Catherine again, now for $450, to Marie-Catherine corsal Labosse, the widow of Pierre, the baker. At that time, she was again described as, quote, a Negro woman named Catherine formerly belonging to the estate of Anthony Plumet, end quote. The reasons behind these various sales are unknown, so we have to use our imaginations to ponder why ownership of Catherine passed from hand to hand during the 1820s. Perhaps the pain of gaining and then losing her freedom broke her spirit and transformed her into a difficult person and unpleasant company. Perhaps Catherine simply expressed a desire to live with another family. On April 14, 1831, Catherine's owner, Marie Labosse, a native of Saint-Domingue, made her last will and testament on the same day that she became an American citizen. She owned at least a dozen slaves at that time and directed her future executors to emancipate eight of her favorite people as soon as the state legislature amended the 1820 law prohibiting private manumission. The remaining slaves in the household, said Mrs. Labosse, were to have the privilege of choosing their owners and to be sold at a reasonable price. The enslaved woman Catherine, formerly the property of Antoine Plumet, was not among the eight favorite people named by Marie Labosse who should be manumitted. Nor does Catherine appear among the eleven slaves named in the inventory of Madame Labosse's estate, which was appraised after her death in early June 1836. Sometime between 1825 and 1836, Catherine disappeared from my historical radar. In my effort to narrate Catherine's story, I've explored a large number of records held at archives both in Charleston and Columbia. I was determined to find some document to illuminate her final years, so I considered the possibilities. Perhaps she ran away and found freedom elsewhere in a community opposed to the practice of slavery. Perhaps Madame Labosse sold Catherine to another party and failed to record the transaction with the proper authorities. Or perhaps the baker's widow grew tired of Catherine's presence in her household and complained to Pierre Brisson, from whom she had purchased the enslaved woman in 1825. We might never know the truth of the matter, but I followed my hunch that Catherine might have returned to the possession of the man who spoiled her freedom. Pierre-François Brisson, a native of Brossac in the arrondissement of Barbezieux in France, but now residing on Wolf Street on Charleston Neck, wrote his last will and testament in the spring of 1843. He bequeathed the bulk of his modest estate to cousins in France and directed his executors, Thomas W. Malone and Robert de Lomont, to sell the rest. But Brisson also articulated two small exceptions. Two of the three enslaved women in his household were not to be sold. First, he gave to his goddaughter, Cécile Massaillon, an enslaved woman named Lucy. Second, he addressed an old and faithful servant who I believe is our protagonist, Catherine. Brisson wrote, quote, 
I give and bequeath to my executors aforenamed, my slave Catherine, in trust, for their use of and behoof upon this condition, that they shall not and do not extract from her more than the annual wages of fifty-five cents in consideration of her uncommon faithful services to me." If the woman named Catherine in the will of Pierre Brisson is indeed our protagonist, then we can draw two important conclusions about the final years of her life. First, she seems to have been regarded as a faithful and congenial person, not a curmudgeonly old woman embittered by the loss of her freedom. Second, by specifying that Catherine would, for the foreseeable future, pay no more than 55 cents per year in wages to the executors of his estate, Brisson provided a valuable snapshot of her legal condition. Catherine had become what we might call a nominal slave a person who lived a relatively independent life but remained the legal property of another person. Her owner, Pierre Brisson, apparently allowed her to live and work as she pleased, only requiring her to render him a small annual payment. It's possible that Catherine had lived as a nominal slave since 1820 when Isaac Holmes pursued her freedom in equity court and then in the state legislature. The details of Catherine's relationships with her various owners, including Mr. and Mrs. Labosse, Etienne Paul, and Pierre Brisson, are long lost, but they might have been more agreeable than oppressive. After the death of Monsieur Brisson, his executors were to perpetuate Catherine's strange legal identity, holding her in trust for the protection and indefinite continuation of her status as a slave in name only. Pierre Brisson died in late February 1844, but the precise date is now lost. In early March, Thomas W. Malone, an English-born attorney qualified as the executor of Brisson's estate and prepared an inventory of his belongings. In addition to various household goods, the estate included, quote, one old diseased woman, Catherine, end quote, aged upwards of 60 years, who was valued at just $5. In contrast, the other remaining slave, described as an old Negro woman named Dinah, was valued at $100. Executor Malone advertised to sell Dinah and the other household goods later in March of 1844, but he probably followed Brisson's instructions and allowed Catherine to continue living a relatively independent life. Mr. Malone, a bachelor who formerly resided in New Orleans and shared his house in Charleston with a large number of black and mulatto women, apparently scoffed at the social conventions of his slaveholding neighbors. Facilitating Catherine's freedom was certainly no bother to him. I have yet to find a conclusive ending to the story of Catherine's life, but she probably died before the practice of slavery ended in Charleston in the spring of 1865. Although the date of her death is presently unknown, we can look back at the outline of her dramatic story and appreciate the few surviving facts of her existence. Catherine was a real person who lived and loved in the city of Charleston, and who probably cried a river of tears over the course of her difficult lifetime. 
my attempt to narrate a portion of her life has relied on the existence of a handful of records generated by contemporaries who either sought to oppress her or to help her. With a bit of attention to detail and context, it's possible to reanimate her story, which might succeed as a screenplay or a novel with sufficient imagination. But our state and local archives are full of other documents telling many rich stories, and I encourage everyone to roll up their sleeves and explore our community's colorful history. Charleston County Public Library is your home for local history. To explore our resources and programs, and to read an illustrated transcript of this podcast, point your web browser to ccpl.org. Thanks for listening to the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler, and I'll see you in the future.